on this episode. There was one guy who had butchered his cow, prize cow, in Uzbekistan, didn't realize that it wasn't part of the Soviet Union anymore, and had arrived in Russia with a Soviet passport, so he couldn't go into the country, and they were eating parts of the cow oh <laughs> during this whole thing, right? <laughs> Recorded live in the corner booth at the center of the Coachella Valley universe, this is Big Conversations, Little Bar. Now, your hosts, Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Welcome to another edition of Big Conversations, Little Bar. I'm Patrick Evans, and I'm joined by my co-host, Randy Florence. Say that again. I love the way you just said Little Bar. Little Bar. Oh, man. I don't even know if I can go on with the rest of this I, podcast. Well, I spent most of last night drinking Jack Daniels and smoking cigarettes so I could get that just the right tenor. <laughs> Little bar. It did it for me. <laughs> I'm glad it did. So few things do for you anymore, Randy. That's, that's a, we are here at Skip Page's Little Bar, which is the center of the Coachella Valley universe, especially if you ask... Skip Page. Uh, but they are all so kind to us. We have uh, Chloe and Katie in today. And uh, we're very excited about this episode because I am an animal lover. Uh, I have two adoring dachshunds who are wondering where I am right now and probably peeing on the floor while we speak. Ryan and Remy. Uh, Randy. You say that like they're listening. They listen. At, oh, they're our most loyal listeners because I put it on when <laughs> I leave. They are like, only listeners. <laughs> you, you two listen. Thank God somebody's hearing it. <laughs> now, this is exciting because, Randy, you recruited this guest. And so I'm going to allow you, <laughs> bequeath you, <laughs> to introduce us I've to been promoted. Um, <laughs> you know, actually, I was going to be really clever and talk about the fact that we had two guests coming in in one body, but... Uh, that doesn't sound very clever, does it? Uh, and the reason I said that it, it is sounds our like a promotion today. for the movie The Exorcist, but that's beside the point. <laughs> that's actually, that's being re-released. I know yeah, it's, a, re- it's a new that. movie. It is. Yeah, it's not being. It is being re-released, but there's a new movie. There's a new Exorcist, but Ellen Burstyn still stars in it. We are so far off track. <laughs> would you please introduce our guest? <laughs> I would like to introduce everybody to Doctor Deb Greco. And I say it's almost like having two guests because, number one, you are probably the foremost international expert on canine endocrinology and feline diabetes. I got all that out and I said it properly. (laughs) Very well done. Yeah. You may be the preeminent ukulele player in America right now. Oh, I seriously doubt that. But <laughs> Deb, thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thank you. It's well, my pleasure. I need to reveal a dark secret at this point because you have spent your life saving cats' lives and dogs and other small animals. Mm-hmm. Randy has spent much of his life trying to kill cats. No. But he is not a... I, I don't kill cats. Well, you didn't... You sort of saved one. You need to tell... So, so... There, there is, a, there cat is a cat that you don't like. Well, actually, all cats. You don't like cats. I'm not a fan. So, I, I did so, have a calendar on my wall at one point that so, said 101 things to do with dead cats. And oh my January, we're using two of them as oven mitts. St- oh, God. Oh, this is the one podcast I won't allow my wife to listen to. Now, but And so I find it remarkable that you chose a veterinarian to invite onto the podcast 
knowing your hatred of cats. There and there's some, a word for, actually, you have a word for, it's not a hatred, but a fear of cats. Yes, Deb. allurophobia. What? Mm-hmm, yes. And if you like them, it's allurophilia, which means you love them. He's definitely more phobic than philiac. Yes. There are so many things in my life that I'm trying to work on right now, and so a lot of times what I have to do is face that. And so now I'd like to face the way I feel about cats. Okay, let's do that. By talking to... Deb Greco. All right. Let's do it. I can convince you otherwise. we're out of time now. But you like big cats, right? So like... If they look like dogs? Well, no. I mean like lions and tigers and leopards and cheetahs. No, if he had a lion that lived at his house, he'd still feed it to a possum, which is what basically happened with Shadow. 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 How about a honey badger? Would you like one of those? No. No, <laughs> no, no. no. I, I know that you know what a benturong is. Yes. A bear, they're commonly known as bear cats. Yes. I did an interview with Jack Hanna, and he let a bear cat climb on top of me and sit on my head. Ooh. It's a true story. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, let's get that started. smelled bad. It wasn't great. <laughs> wasn't great. I know what you're doing today, and we're going to get into that a little bit later in the mm-hmm. podcast, but I want to get back to how this all started, this career in veterinary. You you were born outside of Boston. Yes, take in it, Lexington, take Massachusetts. Take us from there. Yeah, and my first pet when from the time I was born was a big red standard dachshund named Fritzy. Fritzy. And... Dog breath is like, you know, sweet smell to me. That's I love such a German name. Yeah, Fritzy. A lot I'm, of dachshunds end up with German names exactly. through no fault of their own. <laughs> there are a lot of Ottos and Fritzies. <laughs> yep. I didn't choose Schnitzel, the name. Schnitzels. And yeah. <laughs> none of my, I never, I, I avoid that arduously. Yes. My black and tan was named Guinness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the piebald is named Ryan. There you go. And uh, our most recent addition, Remy, is named Remy because he looks like a glass of Remy Martin. He's that just beautiful chestnut brown golden cognac color. color. Yes, yes lovely. And he's not a cat. And he's not a cat. He's not a cat. And they're they're all Irish. It is. It's a little weird how <laughs> yeah. that is. Yeah, Irish, French. Uh, they're German dogs owned by an Italian man and with Irish names. It's weird. There you go. That's weird. And the thing about uh, poodles is that the poodle breeder that I originally got my poodles from, she had a rule: no French names, no Pierre, no. You because know, of course people Louis, want to do that. And yeah. you, you mm-hmm. are you are a lover of poodles and a breeder of. Of standard poodles, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of veterinarians are because they tend to be a very smart and healthy breed. You said something earlier in our conversation prior to we started recording. You said, uh, and, it, and I think it related back to Randy, like we're always wary of people who don't like cats. You're wary of veterinarians who don't have pets. That's right. You're always a little suspect, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It it was like, yeah, but he doesn't own any pets. (laughs) So it's like, hmm. So, hmm. That seems weird because most of us are dog and cat enthusiasts because we end up with a lot of the pets that people maybe don't pick up, leave at our clinic, and it, don't pick up. That happens? Is it because they don't want to pay the bill? Is it what, what, Sometimes. Some, yeah. Sometimes it's that they don't want to treat the disease. So at one point, I had seven diabetic cats in my house oh in my Colorado. Goodness. Because I was doing research on them, and, and then the people, they said, I can't keep the cat, but I'll 
take it back if you cure it. So, so, so I had them briefly. I didn't have them for a long period of time, and I cured their diabetes, and they went back to their homes. How'd you cure the diabetes? I had a diabetic cat. Yeah, um, well, that was my research on high-protein, low-carb diets in cats, and I discovered and wrote the first papers on using it. And in my hands, I can get about 70 to 80% of cat diabetic cats off of insulin wow. by using diet. That is um, that's great. And then they, they took... I went to see an endocrinologist recently because of my thyroid cancer that I had when I was in vet school. And they're like, they were gone for a long period of time out of the room, right? And they came back in and they're like, oh, I just wanted to say I love your work on diabetes. And and you wrote the first paper on acromegaly and cats. And you wrote the first paper on hypothyroid dwarfism in dogs. So they were Googling you while you were with Yeah, (laughs) apparently they were, right? Because they... You know, they're like, oh, that name sounds familiar. And it is kind of a famous name, too. You know, so, yeah. L. Any relation? (laughs) You know, we're not sure. But a lot of Sicilian people have the name Greco. It's like Smith. So it's possible, but not likely. Yeah. Well, there's another uh, famous... uh Greco, Buddy Greco. Yes, that's what he, he was talking oh, you about. you said Buddy? Yeah. Rabbit. Buddy Greco Jr. I said it real yeah. low. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's Jose Greco, the dancer. So, so usually I say Greco. Well, El Ernie Greco. Greco was a second baseman for the Cardinals in the early 50s. There you go. Yeah. There's another one. Buddy well, Greco. But who's on first? Yeah. Yeah. I don't All know right. who's on second. So yeah. how did you, but let me ask you this. So, so you grew up with dachshunds. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fritzy being your first. Yes. And you've graduated to sort of the antithesis of dachshunds. Mm -hmm. You have standard poodles. So you go from short German dogs to tall French dogs. (laughs) To to tall Prussian dogs. Are they they Prussian? They are Prussian. In fact, poodle means puddle in Prussian. Because they were water dogs. I I did not know that. Yes, they are water dogs. Wild stuff. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Uh, And they can be used for hunting. And I've had uh, generally the silver, for some reason. Well, that's um, such a gorgeous color. Yeah, they tend to be really good hunters. I had one that, man, she she could retrieve for sure. And she was a, a great dog, and well, so we can a lot send her of people. Over to Randy's house and collect all the cats. That'll be great. Or the possums. Or the. Yeah. P- <laughs> <laughs> They're all in a box. Yeah. Oh, stop it. Yes. <laughs> so, 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 you you became the really the foremost expert in those couple of areas. Yes. Um, this led you up to or down to New York. Yes, eventually, yes. Okay. Uh-huh. So I went to veterinary school at UC Davis, um, and, you know, I went to Cal Poly Pomona undergrad, So uh, and I worked with uh, snakes, herpetology, and herpetology, and also in insects as well. So I did some work with those, and then I went to vet school at Davis. I then went to Louisiana because my father is from Louisiana. And your father was a scientist. He was a scientist. He was a physicist and an electronics engineer. Talk a little bit about it, because he had a very interesting career, very little of which he could discuss with you. Yes. But he encouraged you. He kind of wanted you to lean into the sciences, but not necessarily medicine. No, he would have probably preferred that I follow physics, chemistry, some of the hard sciences. But I was clearly, um, by my demeanor and the fact that I loved animals, 
you know, more leaning into the biological sciences, and I excelled in those. And I, I, I often thought about being a, um, a landscape architect because well, maybe I knew be after ukulele. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> because career. I liked I liked the fact that I I like memorizing names of plants and things like that, and I did well in school in those uh, things. I did well in physics and chemistry too, which was necessary to become a veterinarian. But I was pretty well focused on veterinary because Art. I read James Harriet. Right. Yeah. Oh, of course, all, all things great yeah. and small. Yeah, and all, all creatures great and small. Yeah. yeah. Those. So uh, I, I love animals. Yeah. But I could never be a veterinarian for a lot of reasons. But one of the big reasons is I can't stand to see an animal in pain. Yes. Like it's very hard for like when 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 one of my pets has to go to the vet, uh, and the pandemic was great for this because it was a it's a drop off service. I'm like, here's my dog. He doesn't feel well. I'm giving it like you had to drop them off and then you had to leave. Yes. And that made it better for me because I don't want to see the process. I just want to get a healthy dog back. Uh, but you love animals, but you were also able to kind of objectively look at them and treat them. And I think that's a really hard thing. It is. Um, but because I was trained as a scientist first, right, even though I loved animals, then when I started to learn about them and what their physiology and anatomy and everything was, it allowed me to be able to be more objective as, uh, because I needed to be objective in order to treat them. I needed to be able to put down a shield and say, okay, um, I can be empathetic towards the animal, but I also need to figure out what's going on so I can treat them. So, I mean, and I know often, more often than not, an animal comes in who can be treated and there's something you can do to help them. But it's also really tough because there are those cases that I'm sure you get where an animal comes in and you know, this we cannot treat this animal. But that's also a relief to the owner because they now have, instead of uncertainty, they have certainty about what's going on. And... I, I don't want to say it's my favorite thing to do because it isn't. Um, but I do feel that part of that empathetic part of myself is able to give people closure and honor the animal when it's time to put them to sleep. Yeah. And it's people think that's the hardest part of my job. It's not. It's the best part of my job because I'm able to relieve that animal's suffering completely. And relieve the owner. And relieve the because owner. Because it's the hardest. Mm -hmm. this, I think it's the hardest part of pet ownership. Yes, so, saying goodbye. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can understand why. Uh, I mean, that makes you a hero in a lot of ways because most, mm -hmm. <laughs> including myself, most pet owners are not ready or able to make that decision and we really need someone with your expertise you need guidance to, yeah you know yeah. someone to say look mm -hmm. this you're making the right choice yes. you're making the humane choice you're making the the ethical choice here correct that's and right it's too bad we don't have it for humans <laughs> yes <laughs> right <laughs> next episode yeah um now we've only got about 45 minutes here yeah. so yeah. Uh, i know you ended up moving to Colorado, mm -hmm. became a professor at Colorado State University. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, about 12 years there. Yes. In the next 45 minutes we have left, how many degrees do you have? 
Um, so I have um, your standard ones that you get before vet school, which is a bachelor's degree. Um, and then I have a DVM from UC Davis. And then I got a master's degree and a PhD in physiology and pharmacology from Texas A&M. And uh, then I, during the time I was doing my PhD, I was training in, as a resident in internal medicine. And I completed that course, which is equivalent to another PhD, basically, um, is a, as a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, meaning that I am a specialist um, with a PhD, which is rather unusual. And um, so I have a, a lot of people that I speak with in circuits and things like that, many of whom I worked with at uh, Colorado State. One of them is a friend of mine named Mike Lappin. He also has a board certification in internal medicine and a PhD. So we were at lunch one day, and there were six of us. I think it was five or six of us. And we all had the same credentials. And we're talking about how, you know, people should do this in their education and everything. And I'm like, that's pretty rich for the fact that we're like maybe 1% of veterinarians that have these credentials. We shouldn't be telling anything <laughs> because it took us forever to get all these right. degrees. Jeez, we certainly shouldn't be giving financial you know, advice to right. people that want to do this type of training or whatever. But, um, so it is a little bit unusual, and you end up in sort of this niche, which is what happened to me. So I don't generally do a lot of... Uh, I don't do any surgery because... <laughs> I usually end up winding the glove <laughs> up into the hall air drill when I'm doing orthopedic surgery. I mean, I did like orthopedic surgery, and I was actually pretty good at it, but I'm so worried about the anesthesia that I can't concentrate on the surgery really well. So I decided, nah, that part isn't something I want to do. I like, I like the detective work of being an internist, right? All these things come in to see me. Nobody can figure out what it is. I pull a rabbit out of the hat. I figure it out. And she's a veterinarian, so the yeah. rat rabbit is perfectly fine. And That's I right. like rabbits. Mm -hmm. I got yeah. nervous when she said something about winding a glove. That made yeah. me just like this all of a sudden. <laughs> well, actually, that is a story. When I was an intern, <laughs> I was an Feline intern. proctology at Stop it. <laughs> and and I, I was left by the surgeon... I'm, you know, I'm fresh out of vet school, and he goes, okay, there's a, it's a fracture of the hip, so I want you to approach it, right? So do the dissection of the skin, the muscles, get down to it. I'm in a meeting. I'll be back in an hour. Well, two hours later, <laughs> right? So I'm trying to figure out what to do. So I decide I'm going to color code the muscles. So each time I transect it, I use a different color of suture, Right? To, so he would know which ones went back together. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so I approached this whole thing, right? And I get it open, and I've got the hair, hull air drill and the plate on the acetabulum, which is the part of the hip where the hip socket goes in, right? It's very and close I, to the ass. Yeah, that's exactly right. I have the fracture together. I have the plate bent. I have the screws in. 
and I've got the hall air drill like this, and it winds into literally winds into my club <laughs> as he walks in, and he goes, "Okay, I'll take over now." And I'm like, "Yeah." Two hours later, the dog's been under anesthesia for two hours, and oh I'm gosh. doing the best I can. And he goes, he looks at, it and he goes, "I've never seen an approach like this." He goes, but we can work with it. I go, I color-coded all the muscles. And he goes, thank God. <laughs> because it was a completely a different approach than what normally people do. But everything worked out fine. And is that still done that yeah. way now? Yeah. So I'm particularly interested in, uh, I understand most of those degrees, or at least what some of those letters mean. But <laughs> when you were a diplomat, what talk about that in, in medical terms. What does that mean? So uh, let's uh, use a television program for uh, an example. You're familiar with House? Sure. Yes. House is a specialist, right? As am I. So I'm a house. <laughs> you're not. You're not the first line of defense. Somebody, no. a, a doctor, a, a vet has to see your pet first, and then they decide whether or not your animal needs more specialized treatment. And that's you. That's correct. Or in some of the other roles that I have played. So when I finished my PhD at Texas A&M, I then went on to become a professor of medicine at Colorado State University. So in that case, I trained interns and residents. So part of what a diplomat does in an academic setting is to train people and do research. And that's where I did most of my research uh, was at Colorado State. You were there for quite some time. 12 years. 12 mm -hmm. years. Yeah, I became a full professor. And then I thought, well, let's see, what can I do after a full professor? And I could be a UDP, which is University Distinguished Professor. More fluff, more <laughs> pomp and circumstance. Or I could go and practice in New York City and see all these great cases and maybe, you know, do some research there. So I decided that I would give up tenure. I had tenure. I gave up tenure. I moved to New York City and became their internal medicine specialist at the Animal Medical Center, which I did for about four or five years. And then I had another bout of cancer with uh, breast cancer. And I decided that working a 80-hour week probably wasn't conducive to recovering from that. Yes. And that's when I uh, called around and I said, I really want to stay in New York City. Um, what kind of job can I get that's kind of remote, right? And that's when I joined uh, Nestle Purina. Uh -huh. And so what were you doing with them? Sorry, Patrick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's I became a communications specialist there, and I worked in the research and development area, that department of Nestle Purina. So I was looking at products that are coming up and deciding, okay, where can those clinical studies go to be done? So I got liaison with a lot, a lot of people. So I said, it's not what I know, it's who I know, pretty much. And uh, then I was able to travel all around the world. That was my job, was traveling 70% of the time. I went everywhere. And um, I do have a very good story for you about my trip to Russia. Oh, let's oh, hear this story. Yeah. Go. yeah. I call it my night with the stands. Uzbekistan, <laughs> Kurdistan, oh, yeah. et cetera. Okay. So it turns out you need a special type of visa, obviously, to go to Russia, right, as an American. So... Um, 
the I have been invited by the European portion of Nestle Purina to speak in Russia with a panel of people. And in the meantime, I was traveling to a lot of, I was in Asia and all that stuff. So when my visa arrived, or what I thought was my visa <laughs> arrived, I didn't get any paperwork with it because it was opened by somebody at my house and they separated the paperwork with it. Anyway, I got this little document written in Cyrillic, which I, I don't read. But it said my name and it had a little number on it, so I thought it was a visa. So I go on my trip. I'm traveling through Madrid. They check it there. They checked it at JFK. I get to Russia. I give them my passport and what I think is a visa. And they say, no ticket. And they hand it back to me. And I'm like, so I hand it back to them. So this goes on for about five minutes. He doesn't speak English. I don't speak Russian. And... So finally, um, the ambassador at that time happened to be in the airport. I think it was... Uh, the American ambassador? Yeah, uh-huh. it, the real tall guy that's on the news, Michael McFallon, or I, I forget his name, but anyway, yeah. So he says to me, oh, well, this isn't a visa. It's an invitation to a visa. And I go, oh, dear. <laughs> so he says... Mm, you're going to have to fly back out oh, and fly back to New York. And I said, no, I'm speaking in, uh, where was I, uh, not Warsaw. Um, I was speaking in another Czech, Czech Republic. So what, I, what he told me was, they're going to take my passport and I'm going to sleep in this little area that's no man's land in Russia. So I know where Snowden was. Oh, wow. <laughs> because so I'm I'm I have my BlackBerry and my Apple phone and I'm you know calling everybody I know and <laughs> they're all saying tough luck. Basically, the embassy doesn't answer. Um, finally, I get a hold of somebody at an airline and I book a flight from Moscow to the Czech Republic, Prague, which is where I was supposed to go next. And I tell everybody I can't get into Russia. Someone else is going to give my lecture. That got taken care of. So then in the middle of the night, they come and get me. And it's like a soldier. He's got my passport. I think, oh, we're going to the Lufthansa Lounge. Because I think I booked it on Lufthansa. So he walks me into this room. And it's huge. And it's got bathrooms and lockers and everything. And it's filled with mostly men. I I think it was all men, except for me. And he leads me in. I figure he's going to give me my passport and my tickets. And he walks out with my passport and tickets and locks me in the room with all these guys. Right? So there's No explanation. No explanation. No, because he doesn't speak English. Right. So <clears throat> I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of disturbing. But I do know that I have a flight out at 2 p.m. So I figure, okay, you know, let me see if anybody here speaks English. So there's an Ethiopian gentleman who is an MD. This is where everybody who didn't have the correct visas or anything were. And to give you the cast of characters, there was one guy who had butchered his cow, prize cow, in Uzbekistan, didn't realize that it wasn't part of the Soviet Union anymore, and had arrived in Russia with a Soviet passport. So he couldn't go into the country and they were 
eating parts of the cow oh my <laughs> during this whole thing, right? <laughs> and uh, then there was a Greek guy. But the good news is Deb saved the cow. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. She's was, wearing some of it now. The cow I, walked out. Yeah, I could identify the different parts, <laughs> yes. I'm like, is this chuck roast? Or, yeah. <laughs> So it, it was it was quite the thing, and that, oh my so gosh. The, this Ethiopian gentleman explained to me that this is the you know place for broken toys that hadn't brought the right correct visas. So I call like that my night with the stands. Yeah, yeah. misfit Ex- toys. Exactly. Everybody's drinking ouzo <laughs> and you know eating cow, and then finally they they come to get me at about 1 p.m. And they frog march me onto the plane, and I'm sitting between two very plump German women that had lots of sausages with them, and and I'm happy <laughs> a, happy as a clam. You know, they're like, oh, would you like some? And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I check myself into the Intercontinental in Prague. I drew myself a bath, ordered a bottle of champagne and a steak frites, and ate it in the bathtub. That's awesome. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. What year was that? That was like 2009. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. so n- not that long ago. Not I mean. that long ago, no. Uh-uh. But, yeah. So wow. I didn't make it for all my other speaking engagements, but missed the one in Russia. I want to circle back uh, because I think we missed a little part of the story. Yeah. So you had this exam, and the doctor pronounced that he thought you had thyroid cancer. Yes. And it ended up being true. You did. I did. So, so, uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, but that's an easy to treat cancer. You, yes. You uh-huh. I had surgery, and then I had radiation therapy uh, to get rid of all of the other parts of it. And that steered you in the direction of endocrinology in, in the veterinary world. Mm-hmm. And so, talk a little bit about how common it is for pets to have endocrine disorders yeah yes well um the disease that i'm the two diseases that i'm actually famous for doing research in are thyroid disease in dogs and diabetes in cats i had a diabetic cat yes it's very common in cats it's one of the most common diseases besides hyperthyroidism he gave it to me he did yeah oh so you got it too i blame him yes yes well it's what's interesting about diabetes in cats is that it's most similar to type 2 diabetes in humans Mm. so it's not uncommon for people who are diabetic themselves to have a diabetic cat and so you know a lot of the research that i did actually was translated into human medicine Um, and what i am most famous for is that I started looking at cat diets, and I was using um, a compound called vanadium, and it was I was using it as a supplement. And what I noticed was that if it was put in canned food, it worked, but if it was put with dry food, it didn't. Wow. And so, it, as it turns out, the cure was the canned food because it was low in carbohydrate. So, whereas the dry food was very high, very high almost carbs. 50% carbohydrate. So the canned food was about 5% carbohydrate. So mm. it wasn't the vanadium at all. Oh, it was, <laughs> it just, was, the, it was just the it, difference yeah. in the food. So this, is, this is how wow. science works, right? So you have a hypothesis. You, you test it. You test the hypothesis. You think that things are working correctly. And then someone tells you in a very important thing. And in this case, it was another veterinarian who had worked at a pet food company. And she said, 
to me. This was before I worked at Purina. She said, well, you know, dry food is really high in carbohydrate. And I went, ding, 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 ding. Uh. Right? And then I wrote all the papers to do my research. And I did some of my research at the Animal Medical Center in New York because there were more cats in New York than in Colorado. So that's kind of yeah, how I ended up sense. there. Yeah. That makes sense. Apartment mm-hmm. living. For uh, our for our listener, yeah. um, what would be the first thing that I would see in a cat or a dog at home, and mm-hmm. I'm not a vet, yeah. that would make me think maybe I need to... Maybe there's something going on here. Yes. For diabetes? Diabetes for a cat. Or They're drinking too much water. That's exactly right. Drinking too much water and urinating too frequently. Okay. And maybe not being able to make it through the night uh, and hold you know, their urination through the night. Randy? Just, oh my God, I'm diabetic. So sudden, this hit really close to it's home. Large volumes go. infrequently. So well, enough about me. But it, but you bring up an interesting point because cats are very different than dogs. Mm-hmm. So we used to think that cats were small dogs, and and. Uh, with and the, that just pissed cats off. You exactly, know it did. Exactly, it did. And that's probably why you, your cat was smacking you in the head. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> they knew I liked dogs. Exactly. Uh, yeah. shadow. But in dogs, it's actually more like juvenile onset diabetes in humans. It's an actual immune attack of the pancreas or some problem with the pancreas itself. In cats, type 2 diabetes is not a problem with producing insulin. In fact, you produce too much insulin, but you have in what's called insulin resistance, and your cells don't respond. My cat, Chesapeake, was extremely insulin resistant. Yes. And mm-hmm. it took large doses mm-hmm. of insulin. And that's a... Um, he may have been... Um, what we call acromegalic, and we think about 25%. No, he was black. Yeah. He was a solid black. I don't think he was acromegalic at all. Do you know what acromegaly <laughs> is? No, no. Okay. Clearly, I don't. Yeah. So, so, is it like calico? Uh, yeah, no. It's not a color. It's not a color. Okay. But uh, are you familiar with like Andre the Giant yes. or Lurch? Yes, of oh, course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that it's an excessive amount of growth hormone. And growth hormone is directly antagonistic towards insulin. So we have a subset of diabetic cats that require upwards of 10, 20 units of insulin. And that's generally a tip-off that they have a tumor in their brain that is producing too much growth hormone. And that's the cause of their diabetes. So the whole time I was treating Chesapeake, he really needed brain surgery. Probably. Or radiation. He lived to be 16. Well, that's a a good long life. I mean, he he did Mm -hmm. a good... And... He would have lived longer were it not for Easter. <laughs> what uh, happened at Easter? Well, possum. <laughs> no, it was an opossum, Randy. <laughs> thought that's all cats died. <laughs> he was not. Did resurrected. he answer the shadow? <laughs> <laughs> what? This is. It, 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 it's a sad story. Oh, sorry. did he eat something at Easter? Yes, yeah. we. We Easter had Lily. A, we, no, we had oh. a huge Easter uh, brunch. And the and cat's a, Jewish. a honey-banked ham. Yeah, and, the, and he, yes, Jewish, the cat was so Jewish, he and he took great exception to it. Yes. And, no. Um, we cleaned up everything except the ham, the honey-baked ham pan. Ooh. And he got up in the middle of the night on the counter. And, and ate his way through it. Yeah. Mm. And so that just kind of sent him over the edge. Yeah. I could see how that might happen. And our 
Dachshund's alerted to the fact that he was going into a diabetic coma. Yeah. And so we, we got him to the vet, but at that point it was a little yeah. a little too late. Yeah. But well, I'm sorry I thought that was that. still a, a lengthy, pretty good length of time for a cat with diabetes. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. So For any mm-hmm. cat, <laughs> 16 years is pretty good age. Yeah. Well, especially in your house where they... Yeah, well... <laughs> We step them outside till something catches them. Um, <laughs> the problem is what people don't realize is that Randy still has the possum. I have a possum whistle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they all come running to the backyard if I see any cats. Hey, but you, you do know that possums, here's a little tip about them. They eat their body weight in ticks. And well, so they, they, are, they perform a very important function because no other animal does that. So I didn't know that. They're, they really are important for the ecosystem and everything. So be kind to your possum friends. Well, I never went after him. Yeah, that's um, good. Now, we teased something at the beginning. It's time to get into it a little bit. Yeah. Ukulele. 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 So. Why ukulele? <laughs> tell us about this. Well, well first of I all, mean, where just, did it start? Yeah. Yeah. Go In ahead. Hawaii. That's where all the ukuleles come from. <laughs> that's, he's right. <laughs> Tiny <laughs> in the wild. <laughs> All right. So when I was, uh, before I went to vet school, and I had a decision to make. I really loved music and sculpture. I worked for a sculptor. I was his teaching assistant and I did things like pour bronze and weld and all these things, right? Because he did monumental sculpture. And My dad looked at me and said, yeah, I'm not paying for that, you know, so, you know, maybe you should go into sciences. And I'm like, yeah, I really do want to be a veterinarian. He said, ah, well, here's the deal. You be a veterinarian for your career and, you know, you make your own money. Don't marry somebody because they have a lot of money and you want to kind of, you know, go along with that. Make your own money. And I'm like, okay, that seems reasonable. And then when you retire, then you can do your music and your sculpture. And I said, okay, that sounds like a plan. He didn't realize I was going to do so much school, right? He was at the, I think at the point of the PhD, which I paid for, right? Yeah. Um, he was, he was kind of like, are you ever going to get a job, right? <laughs> so, Is there anything beyond this? Yes, exactly. Yes. The perpetual so, student. Exactly. And then, of course, I became a professor, which wasn't highly paid either. But uh, I eventually ended up in a career that did pay pretty well in an industry. So... Um, So I had played guitar, and I had taken bass lessons all throughout uh, my, you know, being a professor and all that stuff. I had my own bass. But when you play bass by yourself, it's not really that. (laughs) Hard to sing along to. It is, right? And and you you don't have anybody to play off of and those sort of things. And and you're kind of stuck with the theme from Barney Miller. That's really. Or (laughs) Wipeout. Or Wipeout. That's that's really all you got. This is like, it's a two-song set. Exactly, right? But I like to say four strings, one for each neuron, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, what's the other four-stringed instrument? (gasps) Ukulele, right? And, of course, I thought... I'll take your word for it. I didn't know that they were both four-stringed instruments. Yes. So I decided I would sort of learn guitar in an interesting way. I learned the bass strings first, then I learned the top strings later, and now I'm integrating them and doing guitar lessons because now I know the neck from the bottom up and the top down from playing. And how many strings are in a guitar? Six. 
Okay. So two. Which two get lost? <laughs> Which one? The two on the ukulele or the two on the bass? Which ones go? <laughs> um, they're duplicate. Uh, so uh, so uh. on the bass it goes E A D G, and on the ukulele it goes D G B E which are the top four strings of the guitar. Are there any eight-string ukuleles like there are 12-string guitars? Uh, yes, but it has a different name. It's, it's uh, one of the Mexican uh, instruments, um, and I'm, I'm spacing on what the name of it is, but it's got, it, it's got octa in it, got it because it's eight. It's yes. the octolele. It's kind of the octolele. So, yeah. But what, what drew you to the ukulele uh, so you had the bass knowledge and the four yeah. strings, and, and so it was a four string. But to, to take that deep dive. Right. Like, Into ukulele. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that has to do with my husband because he's an expert on all six strings. So. And your husband is Brad Parker. Brad Parker. He's a, a guitarist, a phenomenal guitarist, blues, rock and roll. And, and a previous a, guest. A, on a the previous podcast. guest on Big Conversations Little Bar. Yes, that's mm-hmm. actually how we got to uh, to, to Deb. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And it's like so we realized she was the guest. No. Why isn't she over here? <laughs> <laughs> With no Brad sitting right over there. So yes, we're, we're yeah, just so. we're just kidding, Brad. <laughs> So uh, what happened was I said, well, why don't I play ukulele? Um, and what I did, there's a big thing that you have to do with ukuleles if you want to play them in a rock band. You have to substitute the G string. So I, I didn't exactly tell you the complete truth about ukulele is that a regular well, you, ukulele. You're like, keeping secret from us on the podcast. I Deb? am. I am. I told you what a baritone ukulele oh, was okay. tuning, but a, a regular ukulele, like a Hawaiian ukulele, has a high G string, then a C string, then an E string, then an A string. That high G string gives it that happy sound, like you know, um, uh, with the Hawaiian guy that do, Izzy that does oh. Uh, oh, over the, the rainbow. Order, yeah, yeah, over that, the rainbow. Boom, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, it gives you that sort of happy, uplifting sound. But if you want to play it so that it integrates with the rock band, you have to put a low G string on it. And so, uh, for example, we're playing, I'm playing the ukulele, he's playing guitar, and our son Abe is playing bass. And at one point in the set, we all switch. Well, oh, cool. he didn't set up his guitar, so he had to play the lead on the ukulele. Oh. Abe had to play the lead on the <laughs> ukulele. But since I had switched out the G string, he could do it because uh, a, a ukulele that's set up like that is like a guitar with a capo at the fifth fret. So he knew exactly where he was, played the thing, and the crowd went wild. Wow. Right? So, and now for Randy's, uh, so that you understand what we're talking about, a low G string is what you would see at Hermosa Beach on most. Yes, most exactly, exactly. I was going to say, <laughs> I, excuse me, while I change my G string. That's that's what I usually I'm not say allowed during to wear a that set. In this band. Yes, high G exactly. strings are more Newport Beach. That's low right. G strings as you go Hermosa. into the South Bay curve. Yeah, yes. Hermosa, uh, well, Redondo. You know, I'm from Redondo Beach. Are you from? Yeah, I am from Redondo. <laughs> well, that's where we moved to after we were in Menlo Park. We moved down to Redondo Beach, so I'm very familiar with the low G string, yeah. right? <laughs> One would be, yes, yes of course. exactly. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, I'm by playing ukulele, I'm occupying a place on the fretboard where he usually isn't, right? 
I mean, he might You're be doing a space. solo. Yes, I'm filling in, and I'm generally using it as a rhythm instrument. So I, I kind of go with the drummer's um, cymbals. So my... Boom, right? That's what I'm providing. Sometimes I don't even play a chord. I just mute the strings that do, you know, like that, which you can do on guitar as well, and many people do it to get that sound. But um, it gives me an opportunity to play, you know, on the stage That's with amazing. my husband. So we jumped way ahead here. Yeah. You have an interesting story. Yeah. <laughs> meeting Brad and how you guys came together. Well, that's true. And uh, so my love of music was pretty long-standing. And when I was a vet student, um, I used to go out and listen to bands on the weekends, right? So when Brad's band, can I say no bullshit? Yes, you can. All yes, right. yeah. yeah. Much so, worse has been said on the podcast. <laughs> yes, well, I thought about that. There's a few, few stories I could tell, but... They contain some... <laughs> We've already had a not safe for work episode, so yes. <laughs> give it your best shot. So, but at any rate, so we used to refer to them as the knobs because nobody knew that it stood for no bullshit. bullshit. So we called them the knobs. So I was a real fan. Uh, are you guys familiar with Louis Jordan? Oh, and yeah. The Timpany Five? So he was like a really, like a jump and jive guy from the 30s and 40s. And I had all his old records and stuff. So what song, guess what song they were playing as I was walking past. So if you think of the Louis Jordan songs. That was it? Caledonia, what made your big head so hard, right? And I'm like. I want to hear him play uh, Oh, yeah. He does Caledonia, uh, sleeps in the kitchen with her feet out the floor, out the door, right? So um, I hear that, and I'm like these guys are great and then they were doing like a field stomp you know like um they were doing uh kind of a odetta kind of thing with a field stomp and singing acapella and so they were kind of known for that old blues but at a rapid tempo you you've listened to have you listened to the album the blues one the live album yeah yeah and so you can see it's kind of an accelerated blues riff yeah. that they do yeah. um so i was very interested in that and that's how i met brad right so, he's cute yeah, yeah i did um he is well they're married I wondered if you well, thought so. yeah i did think, well i know you think he's cute but <laughs> yeah on a very special episode big conversation <laughs> randy comes out that's <laughs> well you know he he is uh only for brad that I know, band only for is his brothers right yes so they were all brothers his older brother scott year older his um youngest brother david right and then the drummer uh, mike who wasn't part of the family but he could play the star spangled banner on his knuckles <laughs> that's how he auditioned for now, one of the super bowls yeah <laughs> so they're like hey if you can do that you probably can keep rhythm right and and he was very energetic drummer great drummer right and so they had quite a bit of success. They played for my graduation uh, party for vet school and things like that. And then uh, that's when I moved to Louisiana. So we didn't see each other for like 35 years. Were there any sparks back then? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And But I was headed you know, to an internship and residency and all that kind of stuff. So we were separated for these. And so what's weird is we both got married in 87, both got divorced in 98, um, <laughs> both lived with um, sur uh, 
children of Holocaust survivors, um, you know, during that time after we were divorced. Um, and then in, uh, we met again in, well, what happened in 2015 is I was here, I was driving in the desert, and I'm listening to NPR, which I often do. And he had done, released an album, and he was on this NPR show called No Lies Radio. And so at that time, um, she was interviewing about him about that. But when I tuned in, it was on a song. And I'm like, that sounds That's, like Brad. It sounds wow. familiar. Yeah. And, and I think and he wrote it about And how much further me. down the road yeah. was this? That was uh, 35 years wow. down the road. Yeah. And the song was written about you. Yeah, it was. Uh-huh. So, so then the only place I could find him was LinkedIn. <laughs> 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 the so professionals like, tinder it's, yeah, a, it's a dating exactly, site for, exactly. for people with resumes so I hit him and he hit me back <laughs> <laughs> wow what interesting so, parallels though that you guys were married at the same time divorced at the same time I had the same experiences with long term relationships with people the same so yeah. once you each swipe right on LinkedIn <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, what happened following that how did you guys then well at that Hook time, I was living in New York, and he was in Encino. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm sitting here thinking, how's he going to say hooked up? Yeah. <laughs> then we, then we, uh, no, no, we. It was like six months of back and forth on Facebook and uh, email and stuff like that, and um, and then we met up again in like November of 2015, and then we got married in uh, 2016 in uh, New Year's. Wow, that's great. Mm-hmm. That is really something. Yeah. So, so thirty-five year love story in the making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And, so. and do you consider yourself? Well, are you still active in veterinary medicine? I am, although I retired from Purina in twenty twenty one, and so and they, they gave me a nice package and all that kind of stuff, so I could do what I wanted to do, and so I do work occasionally. Uh, like it depends on my travel schedule. So, like, we were just in Scotland for several weeks, right? So, so I didn't, probably didn't work at all in September. I'm pretty sure I didn't. But, you know, maybe once a week, just to keep my hand in it. I also do a lot of speaking mm-hmm. because of my experience in communications and also the papers that I've written. So, I do, I used to have a consulting business where I did a ton of speaking. I don't do quite as much as I did before. And um, so my life is made up of um, a little bit of easy veterinary medicine, mostly in the area of endocrinology, which is my expertise, and playing music. Do you get fed being on the stage? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I like to say the most dangerous place in the world is between me and a microphone, <laughs> right? I think that's true for you, too, isn't it? Oh, that's really, yes. Yeah. That's actually how I tore my rotator cuff. Yeah. <laughs> You're reaching for the microphone. I had, to, I had to make up a story about falling at home. It was really Randy <laughs> pushing me out of the way. So, you know, it because, and I've had traumatic experiences on revolving around speaking because I used to be very, very flustered and not able to, to do that, right? Wow, you did, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, I know, but I, I took courses when I was at Colorado. I took a course called uh, Teacher as Actor. And so that was very, very helpful in the drama department. 
and they love me because they never get scientists or if they do all they get is the back of them with them writing <laughs> on, the, on the board right so you know we we figured some things out there and so my favorite story about my speaking and i'm famous for it now but I'm at this huge conference. There's probably 2,000 people in the room. I'm giving this talk on a very difficult subject. And at that time, we used to have sort of dual slides, right, that were on a carousel. Oh, yeah. And you'd hold the clickers together and you'd re, you know, go one to the other and then the next set. So I'm in a short, tight skirt in heels. And they set it up so that here's the screen and here I am. So I can't see the screen to cue, right? So what I do is I step this way and this way a little to get a look at the screen and I go off the stage (laughs) screaming expletive deleted on the way down. I land on my feet, no skirt up over my head. You're like a cat. Yeah, exactly. Very, very feline-like. I land on the thing. I get back up, but now all my slides are screwed up because oh, they were tandem, right? But now one is ahead of the other. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying. So that once that happened to me, I decided that was the worst thing that could happen to me speaking. So I don't care anymore. Wow. And and that makes me be able to do it off the cuff. So, Deb, what's coming up for you and Brad and the knobs? What should people be going to listen to now? Okay, so we have a couple of things on October 7th. We're going to be at, up on the high desert um, doing an acoustic set with our band Far Out West. And in the lower desert here, we're going to be at the 420 Bank and Dispensary in Palm Springs. Um, and we're going to be doing a cosmic blues set uh, which should be really fun some Peter Green some uh, I think uh, we're going to be there for that yeah, really uh, I think if it. you want I think it's going to be really fun we have our if Sunday if I can too. find myself going into a place called 420 420 yeah. gee I don't know yeah I might have to wait outside it's 420 somewhere isn't it <laughs> constantly yes Randy exactly. will be there the day before yeah <laughs> I want a good seat and he will have in his arms injured cats that he picked up along the way <laughs> that he himself injured that yeah, you will thank have you to so say. much for this. This yeah, has been so amazing. it was really fun. Thank yeah. you. Super fun. And I want to circle back. Uh, there's a conversation we, we, we dabbled in very briefly yeah. that might even get edited out. But you were talking about Cushing's disease and dachshunds. Yeah. All right. So uh, it's very common in dachshunds. Yeah. How is it treated? It's treated by using one of two drugs. Uh, the first drug is called trilostane. And uh, that drug is um, a drug that interferes with the synthesis of cortisol. It doesn't do anything for the disease itself, which is a disease where there is um, a hormone produced by the pituitary that then acts on the adrenal glands and causes them to enlarge. It just interferes with the ability of the adrenal gland to process it to cortisone. Okay. Uh, the second drug is an older drug, but sometimes I will use it, um, and that drug actually destroys the adrenal gland so that it cannot produce cortisol. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, sometimes in a dog that has a very severe case, I will just do basically a chemical adrenalectomy with that drug and then put them on supplement. So, But it is this, treatable and... 
very treatable. It's super common. Yeah. And um, so been very lucky. Oh. And I've had multiple dachshunds over the years. None of them had that, but it, I know that it is. It's a pretty it's common. genetically inherited yeah. in the dachshund. I once had Missy and Chrissy that were sister dachshunds, and one got it, and then the other one got it a year later. Wow. So I know it's genetic in certain breeds of dachshunds. Dachshunds, Yorkshire Terriers, another common yeah. breed that has it. But I, as I like to say is, it's beginning to look a lot like Cushing's. <laughs> Comedones in every pore. There's a puddle on the floor and one right by the door. <laughs> so the signs of Cushing's disease are the same as diabetes. They right. are. And sometimes they occur together. Drinking too much. Too much. Urinating too much. Yes. All right. Well, this is the way to finish up a podcast. Yeah. Uh, talking about dog urine. Well, yes, it, it exactly. actually works because you have a dog. I, I, I occasionally drink too much and you occasionally <laughs> pee too much. So it works out perfectly. It's a, mm-hmm. It is the symptom. If you have that, you have Big Conversations Little Bar. That's what you got. That's right. Exactly right. We want to thank you all for listening. And our, our guest, Deb Greco, thank you. It's so interesting. And and for, and really kind of annoying that you're you can be an expert in, in so many places. <laughs> to be, I mean, it's like some of us struggle with just one talent or, or almost none. I had a hard time getting here today. And, <laughs> and, and, and now you, I get to listen you to your entire life. A musician, well. a ukulele expert, and, and you save animals at, the, at every turn. It oh. is a, it's a little ridiculous. Well, but, medicine and music are connected, right? It, they are. The, yeah. Well, I think there's so frequently a crossover between the creative and the scientific. Exactly. Like, uh, science, math, and music all sort of work together. together. Exactly. And so it's probably l- more common that people who are experts in one can be experts in the other. Just a lot of people don't explore that side of themselves. Correct. I think it's really remarkable that you, I mean, and great that you and Brad connected because it just gives you that musical outlet too. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a really wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And that's a much better note to end this episode. Oh, there we go. Yes. <laughs> That's perfect. We so much thank you for being a, a part of the show today. Thank you. And, of course, uh, to John McMullen, our producer extraordinaire, and to my co-host, Randy Florence, and to our hosts here at Little Bar. We will see you next time on Big Conversations Little Bar. Thank you for joining us for Big Conversations Little Bar with Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Hear our entire library of episodes from BigConversationsLittleBar.com or most major podcast portals. This podcast is a production of the Mutual Broadcasting System. Mm